giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing In to Other Giant Robots podcast. This is episode 27. My name is Ben Orenstein, and today I'm here with Joe Ferris. How's it going, Joe? Pretty good. How are you, Ben? I'm doing super well on this chilly morning up in New England. It's brisk. It's brisk. Crisp. It sure is. I biked into work, and I had two pairs of gloves, and my hands are still cold. (laughs) I had nested gloves. Uh, so today we were going to talk about the law of Demeter. Demeter. So I put I put on t- I, I tweeted on this site called Twitter.com that uh, the real law of Demeter states that no two people can agree on how to pronounce it, and I got a chorus of responses telling me no, no, it actually is this, and the consensus was almost evenly split. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Um, but we're going to go with Demeter, I think. That based on the majority of my research, that's that's correct. Um, so we had a question. Oh, why don't we explain Demeter first, and then I'll read a question that we got along the lines of it. Um, so I read a great, uh, a pretty good summary of this on uh, Avdi. Avdi's blog has a, Avdi Grimm has a nice post on this, and he sort of summarizes nicely, which is back in the 1980s, a group of programmers working on a project called the Demeter System. Don't do it. <laughs> The Demeter system realized that certain qualities in their object-oriented code led to the code being easier to maintain and change. Qualities such as low coupling, information hiding, localization of information, and narrow interfaces between objects. They asked themselves, is there a simple heuristic that humans or machines can apply to code to determine whether it has these positive qualities? And what they came up with was the law of Demeter. And the basic rules of law of Demeter is, your method can call methods on its own fields, but not on the field's fields. Not on your data's data. Am I good so far? Yeah. Another way I've heard it described, which is uh, a little more succinct, is you can touch your friends and you can touch your privates, but you can't touch your friends' privates. <laughs> Perfect. We'll go with that. Um, and so uh, the, we, the question that we got uh, relates to the law of Demeter, which is something that we actually do follow uh, pretty, pretty consistently. And uh, there's a pretty good question that comes out of this. Uh, the question is from Nathan Long of Charlotte, North Carolina. He says, Ben, uh, I watched your talk, refactoring from good to great, and really enjoyed it. I'm curious about how you apply the law of Demeter in your programs. Or is it law of Demeter? I can never figure it out. Suppose you have a time tracking app for your consulting business. The billing calculation for a task might include looking up task.project.contract.client.state.tax rate. Clearly, this is bad will make testing difficult. That's a lot of objects to set up before making an assertion about a task. But I don't like the idea of littering the task with methods that don't that exist solely to reach across the system, like deaths, project, contract, client, state, tax rate, and doing the same to all the objects down the chain. It seems like the answer might involve architecture changes so that there are fewer objects to reach through, but that can result in objects with too many responsibilities. Do you have any thoughts on this kind of situation? Uh, so just, just one more time, just so you guys can picture this in your head, because it might be hard to see. Uh, the, the, the method chain he's talking about is task.project.contract.client.state.taxrate. And by the way, um, if you'd like to see this question written out in text, uh, as well as links that we're going to mention in, the, in this podcast, you can check that out at thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 27. So, uh, Joe, do you want to start tackling this? Sure. 
Um, okay, so first of all, love Demeter. 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 Demeter yeah. is uh, that. That's one of the things that I follow basically religiously. Hmm. There are not many principles that I will say that I actually obey. I like know about them, and I will take them under advisement when writing code. But love Demeter is one of the ones I actually follow, and the reason is that it's a form of duplication. And duplication is nasty in that, um, although you can make a decent decision and say like, well, it would be better for me to just duplicate this here than to, I don't know, to do some kind of crazy abstract and that's going to be harder to understand, right? Mm -hmm. But the next person's not going to realize that, right? So like duplication is impossible to see in a diff. A diff shows you what was added and what was removed. If you copy and paste 10 lines, then it doesn't show up in the diff. It looks like you wrote 10 lines. Right. And so this is one of those invisible problems where it's hard to tell how widespread it is without tools. And even the tools have a hard time detecting some duplication because not all duplication actually looks like duplication. Right. right. So, so what is the duplication that violating law of Demeter can create? Well, when you violate law of Demeter, you're accessing something through a nested structure. Mm -hmm. And the relationship in that structure has already been specified somewhere else, right? So a... State, for example, knows that it has a tax rate. A client knows that it belongs to a state. A contract knows it has a client and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and when you have the violation there, you're saying, I need the tax rate. And by the way, I can get the tax rate because I have a project, which has a contract, which has a client, which has a state, which has the tax rate. And so you're repeating that relationship. You have now the actual classes declaring that relationship. And then everything that uses those classes redeclares the relationship, mm -hmm. which duplicates it so if it ever changes if you have to introduce a new member or remove a member or even rename a member then now you have to not only modify the relationship in the class and the class itself but in every class that uses that class violating the law of demeter so, so law of demeter could almost boil down to dry yeah i mean it's basically um it's a kind of dry that people don't notice it's or a kind of duplication people don't notice mm -hmm. right like there's some duplication that's very obvious like you know if you copy and paste, you've duplicated something. You don't have to look at it to say, like, yeah, that looks the same. But law of Demeter is not as obvious. Like, you're not copying and pasting. You're not, um, you know, actually writing the same code. The declaration for the relationship will look very different from the code that uses it. But it is the same information. Mm -hmm. Got it. So Nathan's question is, or one of the things he brings up is, you know, he understands that this is going to make testing difficult. And that refers to, I think, the idea that you're going to have to, if you want to create a stub, for example, or even if you don't want to make, basically building the setup, uh, building the fixture for this test is going to be a pain because you're potentially reaching through all these objects. So you either need to make this long stub chain or you need to build up a real chain of, of real objects, which is also going to be a pain. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, that's the pain. But he says he doesn't like the idea of littering, um, for instance, the tasks with task with these methods that exist solely to reach across the system. So how would you respond to that? Right. So I do think that delegators are a, a good first step. Like there may be other things you can do in this application. And it's hard to say without seeing the whole application. And I'll get back to that in a second. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, having delegators means that you don't repeat the relationship. It means you have the relationship. Um, it means you, you pollute the the other members in the chain with the tax rate, right? And so now uh, project has to delegate tax rate to contract, which has to delegate it to client, which, you know, and so on. So you have five new classes that mention tax rate that may have never mentioned it before. Mm -hmm. So that's not great. But it is the lesser evil because it means that if you move tax rate, now you have like maybe two places you have to change. Whereas if you just access the task rate through the entire chain every time, you have to change the entire chain everywhere. Right. 
Um, and he mentioned in his example that he didn't like the idea of those underscore methods like task underscore project underscore contract and so on. And I wouldn't do that. When you define delegators, the delegator shouldn't declare what it delegates to, right? Mm. So if you have a tax rate, it shouldn't be state underscore tax rate. Hmm. Tax rate is almost certainly unambiguous already, right? So there are situations where you have to do that. Like if you have a name, right, and you want to delegate the name somewhere, um, you know, a, a client may have a name, a state might have a name, and a contract may have a name. And so you have to specify, like, whose name are you asking for? Like, if you want to know what client name does this task belong to, mm-hmm. you can't just say name because the task probably has a name on its own. But in the case of a tax rate, that's probably not true, right? Like, the state has a tax rate. I doubt the project has its own special tax rate. Right. And so when you say tax rate, there's no reason to say which tax rate you care about. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we we talked over this question in our dev discussion on a Friday, and one of the things that uh, was brought up was it seems like um, this person is potentially starting with the wrong object. Mm-hmm. So he's he's basically doing something that's that he's going a long distance from where he starts to get some information. So maybe rather than starting with a task, he need, wants to start with a different object that's sort of closer to uh, what he's looking for. Mm-hmm. Is that a, a good indication sometimes when you're violating law of dem- uh, demeter, demeter that... Uh, you might be in the wrong place. Well, that can be tricky, right? Because you might already be delegating some of it. I think the actual smell there is the large number of delegators. Okay. So like if you have a, a, a bunch of objects you have to hop before you actually get to the information, if you have a lot of interaction that isn't buying you anything, mm-hmm. then you're probably performing an operation from the wrong end of the structure. Mm. But I think, um, I think violating law of Demeter... You almost got me to say it. I almost did. <laughs> Violating law of Demeter is a sign that you should delegate more. should delegate more. Okay. And then if you find you're delegating too much, then you should say, you know, am I asking the right object this question? Mm-hmm. And so in this example, it sounds like he's trying to produce some kind of like billing report, trying to, you know, produce an invoice maybe. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like he's iterating over, iterating over tasks and asking what the price is for the task and that needs the task rate to compute the actual cost, right? That's mm-hmm. one possibility. Sure. So in that situation, I'd say, why are you starting with the tasks, for example? Like, why don't you start maybe with a client and give it a list of billable items and say, how much do these items cost? Mm-hmm. And then you just need items with a cost or like a time or whatever you're billing by. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, you can delegate from client to tax rate, which is only what two hops Mm -hmm. which is not really that's that's not terrible that's more reasonable Mm -hmm. yep another thing i just thought of is there's that delegate macro in active support Mm -hmm. um i think ruby has one as well even like delegator yeah yep so uh you don't even if if the if the noise of methods in your class bothers you you can at least make this a one-liner and syntactically improve it a little bit right yeah, it's not even the noise. Sometimes that delegate macro actually bothers me because it hides the noise. And I think the noise can be good feedback. Mm. If you have a lot of delegators, that's likely a problem. And by using these little macros, you're like, it's a problem, but I don't want to look at it. I don't want it to be noisy. I just want to ignore the problem. Right. Whereas if you have all these methods that are like, okay, def state or def tax rate, state dot tax rate, def, you know, mm-hmm. you get tired of it. You get tired of looking at them. Right. And so you're like, okay, why are these here? Where should I move them? What should I be doing differently so that I don't have to look at these anymore? Yep. So do you feel the same way about uh, try then? It's kind of just papering over that issue that you've created? Can you, want to, you, may, you want to make it look nicer syntactically rather than fixing it. Right. Well, I think try is actually an example of something potentially even worse. Because try is saying, 
I know that this object doesn't know how to deal with this correctly, right? Like it might return no when that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But I'm just going to repeat the default everywhere. I'm not going to deal with it. Mm. So like, for example, if you do uh, try amount or zero, that default should be encapsulated somewhere else. Mm -hmm. The like, I don't have one case. Why do you have it in whatever is asking for the amount? It should be what returns the amount. It should know that it has an amount or it's zero. Right. Interesting. I remember early on you told me that you don't like methods that take or return nil. So just kind of an extension of that. Yeah, I mean, if there's a, a situation where you can not use nil, that's preferable. And mm-hmm. that's usually the case. Mm-hmm. You, you have to deal with nil a lot in Ruby because it's been a long-standing convention in the community. You know, like it's in the standard library. It's part of the core language. A lot of the collection APIs rely on nil. So you can't just like live in a, a Ruby world without nil. But when you're writing your own APIs, if you don't need to pass or return nil, it's better not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things I've I've noticed um, that has definitely improved some of the code I've written lately has been that I'm paying more attention to um, how annoying it is to set up my tests. Um, so I'm doing TDD all the time, and if it becomes a pain to stub things out or create actual uh, the actual object graph I need, I'm trying to pay more attention to that. And I find that that leads me to not violate law of Demeter frequently because... I'd rather just, and I'll, I'll just pretend, I'll set a stub up and say, I'm just going to pretend that a method exists on user that returns this information I need. And then sometimes I'll realize that, that that's just a delegator on user. Um, but since I, I force myself to like write a, a clean and pretty test, it makes it more obvious what the, the production code should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, especially if you're doing isolated tests with stubs, if you find that you need to set up a lot of stubs, then you have too many collaborators. You have too much information encoded in the method. Mm-hmm. I think um, related to that, a sign that you might be delegating incorrectly is if you go to set up that stub and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to say uh, project returns a tax rate. If you think about that and it doesn't really make sense, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, why does a project have a tax rate? Mm-hmm. Then I, I think it's a sign that you might be starting from the wrong point in the structure. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So uh, one thing that I think is important to clarify is that... Um, Law of Demeter doesn't say that like you can't have method chains. Like if you're working just on your own local data, say you have a string and you want to chop it up and you know run a handful of methods that all process that string, that's all okay because you're working on your own data, right? Well, I mean that's sort of a fuzzy line because technically you're not working on your own data. So if you call like uh, uh, string dot strip dot g sub dot to lowercase, mm-hmm. you're operating on something else's data. You're not mutating it. I guess if you mutate it, technically it's not violating law of Demeter. Huh. But it is a violation if, I, if I'm if i using those return values? If you interpret it strictly. Interesting. I think that uh, law of Demeter and a lot of other principles don't apply cleanly to some specific patterns. Like, particularly Ruby DSLs tend to be fluent or fluid, whatever you call that. And um, What does that mean? Basically, like uh, the RSpec change for uh, mattress, for example, right? So if you have an RSpec matcher that you chain like four times, like I'm trying to think of an example of one, but usually you you start with a method and then you call something on it. Like should receive value. dot never. Yeah, exactly. Dot never. Like the Mocha ones are a good example. Mm-hmm. Like um, expect something with something, returns something, then something else. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge method chain, right? Right. But like, although you could look at it and go like, aha, violating law of Demeter, you, you know, you're sort of obeying the letter of the law not the spirit Mm. and i think the builder pattern in general anything like that that's supposed to be pretty is um it doesn't make as much sense because you know it's returning the same object you know it's supposed to be used that way 
you're not repeating information, you're obeying the API. Hmm. It was interesting to hear you say earlier on that this is one of the things that you follow sort of semi-religiously mm-hmm. um, because there's there's almost nothing like that I've discovered in the programming world. Mm-hmm. There are very few like truths that are all, all almighty and all that. Um, do you have anything else that you pretty much always follow? I, the only thing I can think of um, that's this high level is duplication, and I, I consider a law of Demeter to be a form of duplication. Mm-hmm. And it's specifically because it's impossible to tell how much you've done it. So, like, for example, think about single responsibility principle. Mm-hmm. If you look at a class, you can tell exactly how much stuff is in the class. It's obvious. Whereas with duplication, if you look at a method, you can't tell if it's duplicated. There could be the same method somewhere else, right? Mm. It could be 20 times. But if you're just looking at that one method, you can't see if there's a problem. Mm. And so um, because duplication is so easy to get away from you, I, I avoid it entirely. Gotcha. So you pay extra attention whenever you're adding new things to make sure you're not duplicating existing. Well, and specifically, I I don't copy and paste. Like, most duplication isn't because two people didn't realize they wrote the same thing. Mm. Most duplication is because the same person wrote the same thing a bunch of times, either by copying and pasting or looking at an existing method and basically rewriting it again. Mm-hmm. What a jerk. <laughs> and it's easy to do, you know, if you're testing something, it's like, oh, I'm testing something similar to what I just tested. I'll basically do the same thing again. Mm-hmm. And then you write it out. And it's not like you don't know exactly what you're going to write. So you can't immediately extract before you write it, right? Mm-hmm. That would be you'd require psychic powers to do that. Right. But after you've done that, you know, like if you copy and paste it or if you rewrite it again and you look at it, don't commit that. Like look at it and say, oh, these are similar. I can extract this. And do that step every time. Mm-hmm. Always go back and refactor. Right. Yeah. Whereas, like, with single responsibility pro, uh, principle, I do look at it every time. Like, when I add a method, I'll look at it and be like, is this class doing too much? Mm. But if I decide it's, like, you know, on the line, sometimes I'll say, fine. Because somebody who adds the next method can look at it and make the, desa- the same decision. Mm-hmm. Whereas with duplication, the next person who duplicates it can't make that decision because they won't know it's already been duplicated seven times. Mm. Interesting. So one thing I've noticed is that um, most people seem to at least generally obey that principle with a like if, if they cut and paste a method they go back and extract something afterwards uh, i feel like people are a little bit less disciplined about this in tests like they'll say well this i'm going to test a method that's like and i need to set up roughly the same thing as this other method and they'll cut and paste the test and the method and then refactor the method and leave the test mm-hmm. like i see more duplication in tests than than actual production code yeah i think people don't um refactor tests as much in general and i I think there are two reasons for that i think the first is that people inherently look at testing code as less valuable right like the user won't use it so why do i care right Mm -hmm. but the test code is only useful if it's good code right like if you have bad test code it's worse than having no test code Hmm. really it it, there's a there's definitely a threshold you reach where it just increases your maintenance cost right because the tests themselves provide no value to the user. It's the production code the user cares about. Mm-hmm. And if you get to a point where instead of you know improving your design and catching regressions through bad through good tests, you're just fixing bad tests all the time, mm-hmm. it's not helping your production code. Mm-hmm. The tests exist to serve the production code. Mm-hmm. But to me, that doesn't mean you know delete your tests. That means write good tests. Do extract duplication in your tests because you want to have good tests. And it's not that hard to do. Right. I think the second reason that people don't do it is because modifying tests makes people nervous because there's no test for the test. Right. Right. So like if you decide like, oh, I see a bunch of duplication. These tests all look the same. I'm going to refactor them. 
that's that's all you know fine and good but there's a good chance that you now refactored all these tests to be not testing the same thing every time you change something there's a a, a chance that you also change its behavior mm-hmm. right and so when you're refactoring tests you're trying to keep them testing the same behavior but you might not and nothing will tell you that mm. Right. And my response to that would be, if tests are code without tests, it's even more important that they be well-factored and easy to understand. Mm -hmm. Right. But you do have to be careful. And I I think it does sort of push the line back a little bit about, like, when when should you refactor? Like, if you encounter a terrible class and you start, like, going to town on it and you have tests for it, that's okay. But if you encounter a terribly written test Mm -hmm. and you're like, I'm going to rewrite that, you're pretty much guaranteed to be wasting your time unless you also rewrite whatever it's testing. Right. Right. Wasting in, well, wasting in some sense. Well, what I mean is that you'll be writing a test that no longer applies to the code it's supposed to be testing. Whenever you refactor something, like whenever you re- rewrite something, the behavior changes. There's no avoiding it, no matter how careful you are. If you don't refactor in little steps, if you have to apply massive changes to something because it's so bad, mm-hmm. you change the behavior. You don't have to like look at it and figure out if you did. You definitely did. Uh-huh. Um, and so if you massively change the test, you have changed what it's testing. And so you no longer have the same regression tests. You no longer are testing the same design. There's no avoiding it. And so rewriting a test, like massively rewriting a test, is just a foolish thing to do. So would you start from scratch? If I had to, but I mean, as a developer, you're trying to deliver some kind of value to somebody somewhere. So you have to make a judgment and say like, this is a bad situation, but is it, is it worth climbing out of this hole? Should I just move on? Hmm. So what is so then? What is your general response to your say if you're making a change in like you uh, you have a test that's terrible and mm-hmm. you need to make a change in the class that is testing? Is your approach to just kind of say, well, I know this test is terrible, I'm just going to add a little more stuff at the bottom here and hope it's okay? Pretty much, yeah. Huh. There's a point, you know, like if you change something often enough, like you refactor a little bit. I won't massively write rewrite, but I'll when I write new tests, I'll try and write them well. Mm-hmm. If I have to change a test, I'll try and improve it a little bit while I'm in there. Totally. Because in that situation, like, you do know what you're testing because you're writing it, so there's no excuse. And mm-hmm. if you're changing an existing test, you're also changing the behavior, so it's not as much of a problem that it's no longer testing the same thing. Mm. That sounds like uh, the Boy Scout rule, leaving the code a little bit better than you found it. Right. But I, I do think there's a sort of a point of no return where it's like, you just can't let your code get that bad. If your test code is that bad, then it's no longer valuable to you, and you can no longer proceed in a good fashion. Hmm. And then what? <laughs> uh, find a new job, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> just move, quit. Yeah, I mean, if you're, a, if you're a consultant, just don't take on projects where the code is bad enough that you know you can't do a good job on it. Hmm. And if it's your own code and you wrote it, then I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, declare bankruptcy on that particular file i mean is it does it make sense to, if if it's if things got bad enough would you i mean is does it make sense to nuke the test and the production code and sort of start from scratch tdd out a new solution with better tests for it i think anytime you rewrite something you have to treat it as if you're throwing away all the money you put into it so far mm-hmm. so like if i were starting today would it be worth it for me to spend the money to write this again right mm-hmm. like am i getting the same value of it right because you're starting from scratch when you rewrite something. Mm-hmm. You can say you're gaining on the knowledge of the previous iteration, but realistically, you're just making fabulous new mistakes. Right. So if you rewrite something, you have to be willing to start over again. And so like that applies to a class on like the micro level, but it applies to a project on the macro level. Like I've seen people rewrite projects in different languages or in the same language, and you should really treat it as, all right, my business is screwed, so I'm starting over again. Mm-hmm. Is it worth it for me to throw away everything I've done? 
Mm. And I, I think you have to take that same approach to individual methods, individual classes. Anytime you rewrite something, you're acknowledging that you're starting over. Mm-hmm. And you're throwing away all that knowledge that you actually, all the accumulated bug fixes and things that you've improved and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So uh, you and I sit next to each other in the office, and uh, I've been stealing glances at your screen, and so I happen to know that you are working on a new project. That's right. Um, for the past few weeks, I've been working on a new book called Ruby Science. Uh-huh. Cool. And what's in it? So or what will be in it? Yeah, well, we, we've written the first couple chapters so far, but the plan is to, um, to have a catalog, sort of a reference-style book of smells, refactorings, principles, patterns that are related to common Rails pro, uh, applications or problems in Rails applications, basically things that we, we actually see every day as we're developing applications and show real examples of applying those principles and patterns and refactorings to improve the code. Hmm. Interesting. So it's sort of a, a, a lot of case studies then in particular in every chapter? Well, so what we decided to do is start with a fictional example app and write it. And uh, this part was hard. We right. didn't refactor it as we went. We wrote code that we weren't happy with. And then we basically refactored it and wrote about it. Mm. And so it, it is, it's not a uh, release production Rails app, but it's a real Rails app, and it's developed in the same style as we would usually develop applications. So it's just, except that we do red, green, red. <laughs> right, well, we, yeah, exactly. And, um, well, we did red, green, refactor, right, so we have a, an additional step in there. Got it. So if, so this book is in progress still, but mm-hmm. if people wanted to, we're going to be uh, allowing people to have early access to this, right? Right, so if you go to rubyscience.com, uh, you can buy the book, even though it's you know not finished yet, mm-hmm. but we'll give you access to the Git repository where you can see everything we've done so far. You can comment, open issues, and you'll get automatic updates as we push them to the repository mm-hmm. as we write new content. And you know by getting in early, you actually have some say in what the book will be about. Totally. You know if you want us to expand a chapter, if you want us to, if there's a chapter you feel like it's missing from the table of contents, you can let us know. Um, and you'll also be able to get access to all the other formats we publish from the repository, ebooks, PDFs, and so on. Great. And that's uh, rubyscience.com? Mm-hmm. Also, um, anybody that buys the book will get access to support and uh-huh. be able to ask questions of the authors. So, Cool. We'll make sure that we can uh, put a link to that in the show notes as well if you want something clickable. Uh, so I think that uh, pretty much wraps things up. Uh, Joe, thanks very much for coming by and chatting with me. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, once again, that's at thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 27. Today's podcast was recorded by Shauna Quintal, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.